this week dipped a little cooler in the capital region. Holiday decorations have already started popping up in local stores. Holiday lights in the park are going up. Michael Buble performed at the Times Union Center, although he didn't really sing any Christmas songs. But that has some of us here at the Times Union debating. When exactly is an acceptable time to turn on the heat? Now? November? December? What do you think? Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. The oddest story there involves um, two bears who uh, escaped from their enclosure in 2019. We'll get to know new Albany men's basketball head coach, Dwayne Killings. You know, now that I get a chance to live out my dream, now we got to get it right. And we'll celebrate the 15th anniversary of table hopping with senior writer Steve Barnes. There is a, pardon the pun in advance, an endless appetite for restaurant news. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. A look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's go over what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. All right, let's go over top news now with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. Let's start at the top with a recent traffic stop that may have averted a shooting disaster. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, a story by Brendan Lyons um, about a traffic stop a little bit more than uh, a week ago in which two teenagers, ages 16 and 17, were pulled over by Albany County Sheriff's deputies. These young men were from Clifton Park and Troy. They were driving around Albany in a Porsche owned by the mother, registered to the mother of the Clifton Park boy. In the back seat, they found one of the two teens sitting accompanied by an armory that included two nine millimeter pistols and several high capacity Uh, magazines, including one that was uh, one of these 50-round drums. It's uncertain what they were up to, but what law enforcement noted is that a short distance away from where they were pulled over because they were driving around with no lights on, there was a vigil going on for a victim in an earlier fatal shooting. Now, these uh, teenagers were taken into custody under the raise the age reforms that were put in place a couple of years ago, they were uh, released to their parents on their recognizance. So it's unclear what was going to happen, but you do not drive around at night with a whole lot of firepower if you're on your way to McDonald's to get an order of chicken McNuggets, not usually. Yes, certainly. We'll be following that more as details develop. Uh, Let's move on to former Governor Andrew Cuomo. His attorney this week blasted Attorney General Letitia James for being biased in her investigation of his alleged sexual misconduct. So what's the latest there? 
Yeah, uh, Rita Glavin, who is Cuomo's now private defense attorney, uh, held a, a long Zoom presentation that was hosted on Cuomo's campaign website in which she offered sort of the highlights of a 150-page-plus submission, uh, an application, she termed it, to the attorney general's office, pointing out things that Glavin said had been left out, overlooked in the attorney general's August report, which came out just a week before the governor announced that he would be resigning. Glavin's point is that the AG's report, which was done by outside attorneys who conducted the investigation was skewed, biased against the governor, that it, it had a, a predetermined outcome that the findings were tailored to, to fit. And more pointedly, that the attorney general herself had involved herself in the investigation while, according to Rhea Glavin, had said that she would not, that the investigation would be conducted entirely by these outside attorneys. Now, Glavin's accusations in that case are based on comments that the AG made in which he referred to, you know, when these women came into my office, meaning the governor's uh, uh, alleged victims came into my office, you know, I, I believe them and they were brave. And the attorney general has not really detailed exactly what she meant by that, whether she actually means physically that these women came in and spoke to her personally, or that she was speaking rather broadly about when they came into her office, meaning when they spoke to her investigators. I think it's fair to um, pose those questions to the attorney general's office to get a little bit more sense of exactly what she meant by that, because it's true that the reason that the investigation was handled by outside attorneys is because the attorney general was somebody who was said to and had not ruled out interest in running for governor herself, which to this point, she has she has not done that yet either. The attorney general responded to Glavin's presentation by saying, look, this is just deflection on the governor's part that a former Governor Cuomo is obviously incensed by an investigation that he can't control and referred back to the governor's 2014 mothballing of his Moreland Commission to uh, investigate public corruption, which the governor shut down when it became problematic for um, him and his supporters. So uh, the beat goes on. And if you want to know more about that bead, <laughs> visit our Capital Confidential section on timesunion.com. Now let's do a quick roundup of school-related news. We had a couple stories this week that were pretty important. Uh, we'll start with the fact that schools locally around here are having trouble hiring. Can you tell us more? This is a problem that's been exacerbated by the pandemic, but is not entirely related to it. That for years now, Jobs in the education field, whether it's kind of rank and file teachers or administrators, have had a much harder time recruiting people. There are numerous theories at work there. Um, the head of the State Superintendents Association told um, our outstanding ed reporter, Rachel Silverstein, that a lot of the kind of wars over testing and assessments that cropped up over the course of the last decade have uh, or appear to have driven a number of people away from the field. And of course, there are ongoing funding questions 
the difficulty in hiring, of course, falls most heavily upon, you know, kind of high challenged, high needs, uh, urban and rural districts. This extends kind of more critically at this point to bus drivers that lots of districts are having a very hard time recruiting bus drivers to get kids to school. On top of that are all the additional challenges presented by the pandemic. And in uh, some local districts, we've already seen in-person learning throttled back due to outbreaks of COVID. In other news, up in the Adirondacks, uh, we reported on a fake bear escape, which is not something that you hear every day. Can you elaborate? Yeah, actually, it was a real bear escape, but the reasons or the factors behind it were falsified. This is a story reported by Gwendolyn Craig of the Adirondack Explorer, which is an outstanding nonprofit news outlet that the Times Union is kind of in partnership with. It reported on the the case of Adirondack Wildlife Refuge, which is in Essex County, which has had its um, operator's license pulled after a series of violations that they have admitted to involving a number of animals, a bobcat, a couple of eagles, a vulture that that sort of appeared at this refuge kind of out of nowhere. And I think it's fair to say that the oddest story there involves um, two bears who uh, escaped from their enclosure in 2019 employees of the refuge, including um, Stephen Hall, who is the husband of Wendy Hall, whose name is on the permits and and licenses that the refuge uh, held until recently, went out and said, "Uh oh, you know, this could be problematic. Hey, see that tree over there? Let's pull it down to make it seem as if that was the route that the bears used to get away. They, in fact, did that. That was the, the story that they told to you know, investigators who came to to look into the bear's uh, exit. Finally, they they did fess up and say, whoopsie daisy, we, we did tell you one thing that was untrue. Unfortunately, what Gwendolyn Craig um, found from documents is that there were a number of cases like this where animals would appear or animals would go missing and there would be these kind of cover-ups. And unfortunately, that is why this refuge is now is now shut down and is in the process of kind of finding new homes for all of its animals. So a sad story and, and a weird one for sure. Indeed, that is quite a story. And of course, over the past couple of years, we've had no shortage of news about escaped wildlife. So uh, those stories always seem to uh, pique interest among readers. All right, well, that's it for this week. Casey, thank you so much for joining us and we'll check back in with you next week. Just thanks. As always, you can read more about all the stories and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. University at Albany men's basketball head coach Dwayne Killings kicked off his first season with the Great Danes this fall. Killings came to Albany from Marquette University, where he'd been an associate coach. An Amherst, Massachusetts native, he played D1 ball at UMass before beginning his 15-year career in coaching. Times Union sports writer Abigail Rubel caught up with Killings for a recent profile. Here's a bit of their conversation. Just to start off, how did you get interested in coaching basketball? Yeah, I, mean, I fell in love with it at a young age, you know, played youth basketball growing up in Amherst, Massachusetts. And um, when I was growing up, uh, John Cuphead was building the UMass basketball program uh, when 
kind of right when he came into town was right when I kind of fell in love with basketball. I met Bruce Flint, who's an assistant coach, uh, who became my college coach, who presently is like a second father to me almost. I talk to him probably once a week. Um, I just loved watching those guys coach players, make them better, grow them into men. I loved the, the relationships that those guys had. And I always thought I would do something in basketball because of what I saw in them. Um, I saw them you know, impact young boys, turn them into men, and watch them help them compete, do all these crazy magical things in their lives. Um, and then once I got to Temple University working for Fran Duffy, that's when I really fell in love with it. I mean, I knew that's where I had a passion for the game, a passion for teaching, a passion for impacting communities, a passion for, you know, growing boys into men. Um, and it was an easy decision to find that as a career path. Uh, and how would you describe yourself as a leader? Passionate. You know, I want probably more for you than you want for yourself. I think that's what I see in people. Um, I think sometimes I pay attention to every word every, you know, body movement and gesture that people give because I'm, I'm trying to find, you know, clues and cues to who they are and how they feel. And then my job is to try to inspire them and motivate them to be better than they actually are in that moment. And then hopefully they see their true talents. Um, but that's what I know. That's what I believe in. And I think our kids have been super receptive, you know, for it because every day they come back with a smile. We hug and we laugh, but we get to work. We get to work. Can you talk a little about the you know, social justice kind of piece and how that fits into your coaching style? I mean, you get a chance, you said it, I mean, you get a chance to be a leader, you know, and, and I can't just focus on basketball because I get a chance to be a face in the community. You know, I'm grateful for when I talk, people listen. Hopefully that happens for a long time while I'm here. Um, but I think there's a lot of things that happen in, in this community and inside society that just needs more attention. And I think, you know, so many times we get seduced into doing, you know, what the job requires. You know, it's the next thing. It's, it's the basketball game. It's homecoming. It's the business proposal. It's budgets, you know. But at the end of the day, there's people and issues that need attention. And, you know, I was lucky, you know, to band together with 21 guys that thought the same way in the Big East last year to create a platform and a group that really put some focus on some big issues that were going on all around us, but we just focused on the biggest institutions. And we were fortunate, you know, to raise some money for a scholarship. We were really proud to put a Black Lives Matter, you know, on uniforms that was seen, you know, on national television all year. And I think what it did is it extended a conversation that happened for a small window of time in the summer. We carried that through the basketball season. We were super proud of it. And then also, I think, again, to, to your point before is, it allowed us to step up and be leaders. You know, just because we're assistant coaches, we still get to lead in our own ways. And we took huge advantages of that. And I think it's important for our kids, you know, especially that we take time to explain them. Okay, what's, explain to them what's going on in society. Also, let them ask questions because it's, it's wrong for us to assume that what they see in the world, they can process the right way or they have somebody to guide them through it. So as a head coach, I think we need to grow them as students, as men and as athletes. And the big part of it is the men piece, especially when you think about our minority athletes. It's, it's a different world for them. And being a minority leader, you know, in this seat, I always want to make sure that I hit the pause button sometimes just to reflect on what we're seeing inside society and making sure our kids are ready to deal with whatever it is they face inside the world. Uh, so how do you plan to continue that work now that you're here? Uh, are there any issues you're particularly passionate about? Yeah, I, I think in the community here, there's a lot of young people that don't believe that getting an education here in the city is an opportunity for them when you think about college. And I think part of the reason they don't come on campus 
you know, they don't get a chance to come on um, campus here at, at UAlbany and see the fountain and see the gym and see people learning. And, and if they don't see it, then they don't know that it's a real possibility. So we did a back to school event. You know, we partnered with some people in the school district as well as Jamel Hood, who has um, a, a local community organization here. Um, and we did a back to school event. We gave out backpacks. But the real goal was one for them to see our basketball players and have an identification of them. So that way in the season, they can continue to understand and see what those kids represent. And hopefully it motivates some of those kids that, hey, that's a, I can be like him or I could go to school here. We're also going to do a Halloween event. We're going to give away candy. We're going to have a good time. You know, we're going to vote for who has the best costume. But again, we're getting kids back on a college campus. And my goal is if we do that this year, we do it next year, and we do it the year after that, over time, that same kid that was seven or eight years old, all of a sudden he gets in his teenage years and like Albany is in his brain. So now all of a sudden he starts to believe and dream that he can come here. And I think there's amazing programs here on campus. We think about the EOP program or the scholarship opportunities here at the university. But I want to make sure kids understand it's a real possibility for them. I think that would be one. Um, I think another thing is there's a lot of energy to try to um, give the youth in the community more opportunities. Well, how can we find you know people that have the 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 really in the end of the day the ability to fund some of the, the great work that people are trying to do to enhance it and make it even better? Um, you know, I, there's been some amazing people that really care about you know the youth. But in the end of the day, to really impact people, they need more resources. We need them here for our program. The same people that are out there fighting their own battles out in the community, they need more help. So if we can put a spotlight on that, that would be great. What do you like to do when you're not on the court? What are just your non-basketball uh, hobbies? <laughs> <laughs> well, since taking this job, I'm I'm, uh, I'm in the office a lot, and we're working <laughs> a lot, which I love. I love the job. You know, I've been working out every, like, four days a week, myself and Matt, um, one of our assistants, and Dan, our, our director of operations, we work out in a place called Power. It's like a high-intensity fitness place. We go in there, we get a great sweat. It's a great community. I really enjoy that. It's a great start to my morning. You know, I used to be a cyclist. I used to get like maybe 75 miles in a week. But since I moved here, I have not been on that bike. <laughs> I'm determined to get on it next year. Um, if I'm not doing that stuff, you know, staff and wives and girlfriends, will go hang out a little bit, get around. Saratoga is really cool in the summer. I, I think the other thing that my wife and I enjoy is just kind of getting out to experience new things, a new city, it's a new place. Um, luckily for us, you know, people have been very welcoming. So we've been at people's homes and backyards and got a chance to, to meet some people and, and hear their stories and they can hear ours. It's been pretty cool. Uh, what do you think is the most important thing for Albany fans to know about you? Uh, I care deeply about the community and the school and this opportunity. You know, for me, like, I've worked 15 years to get to this point you know, in my life to become a head coach. And, and um, you know, now that I get a chance to live out my dream, now we got to get it right. And that's what we try to do every day when we come to work here. We try to have a really great practice, try to have really good planning for community and campus engagement. And, um, you know, I say to people all the time, the people that worked here, that played here and went to school here, it's their program. We just get to be the coaches of it. We get a chance to lead it. And we'll have some nights where we don't get it right. And that's okay. We're going to get up in the morning and work really hard to get it right the next day. But, you know, my goal here is to try to win a championship. And, you know, I don't know the day that it's going to happen. Um, but I can tell you that, you know, I'm putting my heart and my soul into this opportunity. And I'm hoping that, you know, people support not me, our kids. And that's that's the one thing I think is the thing that I, I want people to remember and read and process that, that you know, our kids deserve 
an opportunity to come inside this building and see it filled up every single night that we play. Because also I think that, you know, our program is reflective of our community. So if the building's not filled up, you know, what does that say about the people in the community that they don't listen, they don't care? I don't think that's the case. I think people really do care, but we need to show that by being inside that building and warming this place up, making it a fun place to play. After the break, table hopping turns 15 this week. We'll talk to Steve Barnes about the humble beginnings of this popular restaurant and dining feature. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Fifteen years ago this week, senior writer Steve Barnes published his first blog post on table hopping. It began as a blog that followed local restaurant news, but over the last decade and a half, it's grown to become a Times Union reader favorite. I pulled Steve aside on the anniversary to reflect on its tremendous success. Can you tell me the origin story of table hopping? Times Union restaurant news in the past was basically limited pre-internet to three little items that ran at the end of the restaurant review. Uh, I'm not sure whether this goes back more than 30 years, but certainly uh, Bill Dowd, who became the restaurant critic for the Times Union in, say, the early 90s, would put these little things that some restaurant owner would mail him uh, updates, you know, and it was maybe three updates a week, and it was called Notes on Napkins, so as blogs start, started rolling out in the early part of this century, every, it was like, everybody gets a blog, you get a blog, and you get a blog, but no, Steve, you can't have a blog. No! Because they didn't understand that there was enough restaurant news because for all of those years, it had been three items a week. They're like, you can't have a blog on three items a week? Well, it took me a year and a half to convince them to give me a blog. A year and a half. And fairly quickly, it grew, it got popular, and, you know, by its heyday, a few years in, it was up to like 400,000 visits a month. Some blog posts would get hundreds of comments. There is a, pardon the pun in advance, an endless appetite for restaurant news. <laughs> I would have been disappointed if you didn't bring some puns into this interview. Now, particularly in the last year and a half or so, the service that you provide in that you're talking about restaurant openings and closings and and that the nature of the news around restaurants, that was really important last year, right? We had such an effort to put together a database at the beginning of the pandemic. What's open? What's closed? What's reopening? Who's offering what? What, what can, can they do? Like the rest of society, 
we were adapting at an extremely fast pace and not, and not just me and people I work with immediately, but all of the Times Union adapted in extraordinary ways to get this ever-changing landscape news out to the public. Now, one of the other things I cover is the arts and the arts essentially died. I mean, they just stopped. The live performing arts stopped. There was almost nothing they could do. Restaurants, on the other hand, switched very rapidly to takeout. And then starting in June of 2020, they could reopen with a six foot in the distancing and the outside dining. And then, you know, there was the pandemic surge until last winter and then things closed down again and then they they reopened and then there was the surge again this late fall. So it's that constant turmoil that we've been able to cover or I have as, as best as I could cover and get people the news of, even in an industry for which churn was constant. I mean, I looked at some of the statistics in the past five years alone, 451 restaurants have opened in the capital region and 250 have closed. And that doesn't even include chain restaurants. So mm. an average of 90 restaurants, independent restaurants were opening a year that people could try and they were only losing about an average of 50 of them. And so that's a, that's a busy business. Let's go back a little bit over the years, the 15 years that you've done this. What are some of your favorite table hopping moments, I'll call them? Like, what are your favorite memories about things that you've written about or experiences that you had with members of the community, you know, in direct relation to what you've written about? My favorite story came in the form of, there was a restaurant, a fancy old steakhouse years ago on Central Avenue in Colony called The Golden Fox. And so the original question was, what was the name of the bar downstairs from the Golden Fox? And this would, in the old old times, before people could ask Facebook or the average table hopping reader didn't have a Facebook page or whatever, uh, or Facebook was just for kids, this is where they'd ask such questions. And so people started chiming in, but then it turned into a reminiscence of people in their 40s and 50s reminiscing about bars they used to go to in the 80s when they were in college and bands they heard then. And there were even stories like somebody would say, oh, I was at bar XYZ and I heard band ABC and they played a great set. And then the drummer from band ABC would say, hey, I'm the drummer for band ABC. I've got a cassette recording of that show from that bar that night. Do you want me to send you a copy? What a connection. That's great. It drew 428 comments over more than a decade. Oh my goodness. It had longevity. Wow. And it just, because people would come up, they would Google something like Golden Fox or or any of the other bars named in the comments. And then they would go through these comments and look at it and say, oh my goodness, I remember that. And of course, by then, you know, the the blog readers were in their forties and fifties and they had kids, they weren't going out. They were remembering being 20 and and hearing a band 30 years ago. And, And this was a place for reminiscence. It was extraordinary. And then another one that one of my favorite ones that to me was just really uh, high dudgeon journalism. I was so disgusted with a a local political official uh, that I wrote a blog post that started like this. A new bill in the state assembly would ruin restaurant food and baked goods as we know them. In a deeply misguided gesture that is also an abuse of the legislative process, a New York City assemblyman is pushing a nanny state bill that would ban the use of all forms of salt in the preparation and cooking of all restaurant food. That is quite a statement. Ortiz, the, I mentioned this by Felix Ortiz. Ortiz admits that prior to introducing the bill, he did not research 
uh, Salt's role in food chemistry, its effect on flavor, or his bill's ramifications for the restaurant industry. He tells me he was prompted to introduce the bill because his father used salt excessively for years, developed high blood pressure, had a heart attack, and died. And this one ended up drawing 270 comments. Where do you see table hopping going in the future? I don't know, because what's the future of print journalism? And if the Times Union, you know, does less and less print, how do we fully transform to digital? And we're still adapting. We're trying to get commenters back. I'm working with our digital team to make the commenting experience and the inter- interactivity. And we have to figure out, um, and by we, I mean, I think it is a collective. It's me and it's our digital team and it's my, my superiors. And importantly, it's the readers who are going to dictate, you know, what this can become. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Or just head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Abigail Rubel, and Steve Barnes for their contribution to this episode.